there's a God's blessed us and we're, we're blessing a lot of other people I wish you could see the feedback we get from not just here in this building but uh, what happens over the radio and the different medias that we've gone into and people are so hungry for the word of God I mean they really are and uh, the testimony this many folks on a Wednesday night hunger for the word of God well Galatians is Paul's first letter um, and boy, what a letter it is and we're going to look tonight at the last part of chapter one we've dealt we've taken care of one chapter in two weeks so that's good at that pace we'll be done but I'm not in any hurry I don't think you are either but we're going at a good pace tonight we finish chapter one and we're going to see Paul giving a testimony now I believe if you're saved you've got a testimony it's not an intellectual thing you came to where, well, yeah, one day I had a good idea and decided I'd, I'd embrace the intellectual concept of Christianity. No, you've got a testimony of God changing you, transforming you from who you were to who you are. And this was Paul. Nobody had a more powerful testimony than Paul. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of the Lord. We thank you for the good word of God. We pray that tonight you will open our eyes like never before to the power of God to change a life. No matter where that person has been or what they've done, that Lord, you'll show us that you can change anybody. And we thank you for it. Breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to my heart tonight. I receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. And speaking of testimonies, um, I was here last night for the second anniversary of Celebrate Recovery, and what an incredible. Every time I come, I've been two times now to hear all the testimonies at graduation time. And every time I do, I sit over there and I say, this is one of the reasons our church is here. What I'm watching right there. These people giving testimonies of having overcome incredible addictions and being really, really um, down and out. And a lot of them felt like the referee was standing over them, giving them the count, the final count. But God delivered them. And I say, that's one of the reasons we're here, Celebrate Recovery. And if you need something like Celebrate Recovery, they meet on Tuesday nights. And it doesn't have to be an addiction to drugs or addiction to alcohol. It can be codependency issues. It can be relational issues that you're having a hard time getting through. But there is a core of people here to stand with you, to become your friends, to pray with you, and walk through it with you. So they meet on Tuesday nights at uh, 6, 7. And they eat too. All right. Let's look now. Last time we looked at the first nine verses of Paul's first letter written to the Galatians. And we saw that the young Galatian church had been infiltrated by false teachers who taught that the gospel of God's grace must also be mixed with Old Testament ritual. They were taking the old and trying to mix it with the new and it really insisting that you mix it with the new. And nothing angered Paul with righteous anger more than that. Because Paul was all grace, by faith, with no works, period. That's it. 
So Paul's swan song is, by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Nothing we could do or ever do would have saved our souls. Why are we here tonight? Amazing grace. Crazy grace. Inexplicable grace. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace means God decided to love you and decided to deliver you. And if he had decided not to, we wouldn't be here tonight. Now, those false teachers were called Judaizers because they were teaching Judaism, Old Testament Judaism, mixing it with New Testament Christianity. Now, Paul opened the Galatian letter with a defense of his apostleship because these Judaizers had attacked who he was. They had attacked his reputation, attacked his calling, attacked his credentials, and done their best to undermine him to this new found newborn Galatian church. And so he didn't like to do it. He didn't like to talk about himself, but he defended his apostleship. And so he went on to express amazement that the Galatians who had started out so well had so soon been turned away from the truth to the point that he said, who has bewitched you? What spell have you fallen under that you have departed from the pure doctrine of grace and mixed it with works. What has happened to you? He's stunned that it happened so quickly, that they turned away so easily. These false teachers were so successful. It just blew his mind. Well, next, Paul again defends his apostleship, and he answers some of the Judaizers' questions or accusations. Now, that's where we're starting tonight in verse 10. Now, Paul writes, For do I now persuade men... Or do I persuade God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Can I give you a newsflash tonight? If you're a man pleaser, you're never going to please God. It's not going to happen. If you're worried about what people think more than you're worried about what he thinks, you're not going to take a stand for him and you're not going to really amount to much in terms of being influential for Jesus Christ. Now, God doesn't call us to be intentionally obnoxious, but he does call us to take a stand for him no matter what men think. And so Paul says, if, if I was a man pleaser, I wouldn't be able to be a bondservant of Christ. I had to make up my mind that I wasn't going to be a man pleaser. The fear of man brings a snare every time. So you can't be afraid of what people think. The Message Bible puts it this way, quote, Do you think that I speak this strongly in order to manipulate crowds or to curry favor with God or to get popular applause? If my goal was popularity, I wouldn't bother being Christ's slave. If you've been here a while, you heard me preach a message that I called an audience of one. And I said, and I live this way. I try to live this way. And I'm not going to tell you, I'll be lying if I didn't tell you, there are times that I'll catch myself being concerned about what people think about something. And I have to remind myself, what are you thinking? Forget about it. You don't have to worry about what people think. Because all Christians perform for an audience of one. We do not live for the applause of men. We live for the applause of one. 
And if you have the applause of the one, Jesus Christ, over your life, you're blessed. You're blessed. And, and every believer has got to make up his or her mind of which of those you're going to be. Are you going to be a man pleaser? Or are you going to be a God pleaser? Are you going to be primarily concerned about what he thinks of you or what people think of you? I personally believe that a lot of the church today is completely copping out and throwing the Bible away because they're so concerned about what the culture thinks. So they're agreeing with all this nonsense like same-sex marriage and, and uh, this, this crazy stuff that 40 years ago you'd have been laughed out of the country. But they're giving into it, caving into it, because they're so afraid that a depraved world is going to criticize them. Jesus was never that way. Jesus took the slings and the arrows of the criticisms of men in stride. So I would hope, and I guarantee you, our mindset at Turning Point is we're not going to care what the culture thinks. Because, listen, they need somebody to be truthful with them. And so we're going to be truthful in love, and some of them will be saved because of it. But if we're walking around on glass because we're afraid of what people think, nobody's going to be saved, and there's going to be no testimony for Jesus. So Paul said, I'm not a man pleaser. I'm Christ's slave. He makes it clear he's not about pleasing men. If that were his goal, he couldn't please God. Paul knew that popularity with men and preaching the gospel do not go hand in hand. The faithful preacher often has to take a stand against the world's ways, and it doesn't make him popular, I can assure you. He must take an unpopular stand against drugs, abortion, evolution, homosexuality, and further and so forth and so on. All these things the culture is all messed up in. Paul knew this, and he chose to please God instead. I was told, I said something about evolution one Sunday just a little while back, and a, and a woman got him stomped out and sent a nasty email that how could I be so stupid to talk against evolution? And I thought, well, God bless her. But the more I look at it completely logically and intellectually, just forget the whole religion aspect. Evolution makes a monkey out of you. It doesn't make sense. It's totally illogical and profoundly moronic and stupid. But go out there and say that and see how much people love you. <laughs> so you have to make up your mind, am I going to have the smile of God or am I going to have the smile of people? If you have the smile of people, I assure you, you don't have the smile of God. All right? Now, he next launches again into the facts behind his powerful testimony. Here goes Paul's testimony, chap uh, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it from men. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel I'm preaching, he tells them. Men didn't tell me about it. I had a revelation of Jesus Christ, and we know what happened to him. Now, first he explains how he received the message he preached with such passion, such conviction. His message was not according to man. He had not received it from man, nor was taught it by man. Well, then where did it come from? It came from the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Now, you remember how he got saved. His was not a normal salvation. On his way on the road to Damascus with official permission to arrest and imprison those that he called of the way, something happened to him. He says, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at around noontime, so this is when the sun was at its brightest. Suddenly, a great light from heaven shone around me brighter than the sun. Because when you can see a light in light, that light is really bright. And so heaven's light made the noonday sun pale. It shone around him. Imagine that. Now, he wasn't on a horse. I always hear preachers say, ah, and he fell off his horse. He wasn't on a horse. He was walking. There's no horse in this story. I don't know where they got this. Well, he fell off his horse. and his other. No, he was walking. And this light shone around him. And then there was a voice. Wow, what a voice. Saul, Saul. Now, imagine Jesse, Jesse. Ed, Ed. Can you imagine walking along and the light shines around you and all of a sudden, Sherry, Sherry. <gasps> and then look what the boy said. Why are you persecuting me? Inasmuch you've done it to at least one of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Jesus made it personal. He said, why are you persecuting me? And so Saul answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Oh, wow. And those who were with me indeed saw the light, and they were afraid, but they didn't hear the voice of him who spoke to me. They saw the light. They didn't hear the voice because the voice was personal, individual, aimed straight at Saul. So I said, now notice already he's been converted. Already he's saved. How do you know that? What shall I do, Lord? No man says Jesus is Lord, but by the Spirit. So already he's, he knows who he's talking to. And believe me, on the inside of him, it is one major freak out. Because he says, what shall I do, Lord? But inside of him, this years and years and years of theological training are crashing to the ground. And the Lord said to me, get up, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And when the light went away, he was completely blind. And they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. And he went into a house on a street called Straight, Straight Street. That's no coincidence, I'm convinced. He could have taken him to any other street, Crooked Street, Short Street, Long Street. He took him to Straight Street. And every one of you that got saved, you on straight street now. That's the narrow way that leads to life. So, took him to straight street in the house of a, uh, an individual, and God spoke to Ananias uh, and said to him, I want you to go to this house on straight street, and I want you to go in there, and there's, a, there's Saul. And as soon as he heard the name Saul, he said, wait a minute, you mean the one that has been persecuting the church and killing your people and imprisoning them and terrorizing us? That's him. I want you to go lay hands on him. He'll receive his sight. And I'm going to tell him how much he's going to have to suffer for my name. 
The words, I am Jesus whom you persecute, I'm convinced, stabbed his heart like a sword. Because up until now, he thought he was doing God's work. He thought imprisoning the church was doing God's work, that he was taking a stand for his Judaism uh, and, and, and that which was attacking his Judaism. So he thought he was doing God's work. And in one fell swoop, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, blew it all away. And in a moment's time, all of the screams and cryings and agony and that he had caused, that he had brought upon the Christians, came flashing through his mind. He realized he had been wrong. He'd been the terror of the church up to this point. He testified to a Jerusalem mob that he had been zealous toward God as you all are today. And then he confesses, I persecuted this way, capital W, to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness. And all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and I went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. He had chains with him. He was there to handcuff you and haul you off to jail and maybe to your martyrdom. That was Saul. The conversion of Saul to Christianity is one of the most profound and convincing conversions in all of church history. Church historians have never known quite what to do with the conversion of Saul, particularly the secular historians. And they've tried to come up with all these psychological Freudian excuses or reasons for which this man, Saul, became a Christian and became Paul. And they blame it on guilt and all these things. And he had this epiphany because he was so guilty about what he was doing to people that it, he finally snapped and decided to become one of them to try to get rid of the guilt that was on him. No, 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 no. He met the living Christ and had a revelation. He said, I have this gospel by revelation of Jesus Christ. Once a dedicated and ruthless enemy of the church, he became her greatest champion. Now he tells the Galatians that following his conversion, he had not turned back to Jerusalem to seek out Peter or John to ask them to explain to him the way of salvation. Nor had he thought the gospel out for himself intellectually. When the blaze of light that paled the light of the noonday sun shone upon him and the voice of Christ spoke to him, he immediately called out, Lord, what will you have me do? Saved on the spot by grace alone. Now he again reminds them of who and what he had been. He's telling the Galatians this now. He says, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to absolutely destroy it. I wanted to ruin the church. Not only had he been a persecutor, but he has also excelled in the very Judaism that had originally turned him against Christianity. This Saul who became Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, was a naturally brilliant man, brilliant mind. When they took off his head and martyred him, in my humble opinion, they killed the finest man on earth, the brightest man on earth, the most spiritual man on earth, the wisest man on earth at that time. He says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation. I made straight A's. Nobody made the grades I made. 
being more exceedingly zealous for the, the uh, traditions of my father's. Paul had been given a brilliant mind. He was an expert in the law of Moses. He was a trained rabbi who was determined to make a name for himself. Paul knew the Torah like the back of his hand. He was a Pharisee committed to keeping all the minutiae of the law. This included, just to get started, 613 commandments of the written laws. He knew them like the back of his hand. Yet on the Damascus Road, all of his learning came crashing down, shattered by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow, 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 wow. And imagine having to deal with all this and be blind at the same time. Being led by the hand with all these thoughts and emotions surging in your head. Can you imagine that? What it must have been like? Oh no, I've been wrong. All those people I persecuted, I was wrong. How was I taught wrong? I was taught by Gamaliel. How could I have been wrong? How could I have missed it? How could I have missed Jesus? What have I done? Next, Paul further gives the Galatians a thumbnail sketch of his spiritual history. Here we go. Verses 15 through 17. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, I didn't go see Peter. I didn't go see James. I didn't go see any of them. I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now notice the power of his statement that he was separated from his mother's womb. I want you to think about that for a minute. Can you let your mind kind of go for a moment and consider this, that when you were in your mother's womb, God knew you'd be sitting here tonight. And he knew you'd be redeemed. And he knew the call he had on your life. He knew the attacks the enemy will have made on your life. And he knew the hour, the moment, the second you would be saved. He knew what you were going to look like, what you were going to think like, what your strengths and your weaknesses would be, your chromosomal and genetic makeup. He knew all of that. Tall, short, brown hair, blonde, blue eyes, brown what your voice was going to sound like, the mistakes you were going to make. God's hand was on the life of Paul because God is God. He was on the life of Paul from his mother's womb. Jeremiah said the same thing. Yet at no time did God overrule Paul's will as a moral human being. And I want us to understand this. God persuades, but he doesn't push. He convicts, but he does not coerce. He does not arbitrarily impose his will on the human will. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, Pastor Jeff, if he doesn't do any of those things, then how does he plan something for me when I'm still in my mother's womb? Because he knows the end from the beginning. He knows who's going to come to him and who is not. I love this illustration. Picture a door right here, and on the, the side you're looking at, here's the door, and you're looking at this side. It says, whosoever will, let him come. And it's the offer that every person has to receive Christ and be saved. Whosoever will, let him come. Well, I'm a whosoever. Are you a whosoever? Yes, you are. Then you say, wow, that sounds good to me, and I know that I need him, and I know that I'm in sin, so Lord, forgive me. And you, you walk through the door, and you shut it on the other side, and you turn around, and on this side it says, I knew you were coming. 
all the time. I knew you were coming. He doesn't turn to Jesus and say, can you believe that? I didn't, I didn't know they were coming. No, God is never surprised with anything. He lives in the eternal moment. There is no time with God. So he saw you coming before you were either ever born. So his hand was on Saul, knowing Saul would be coming to him. Now, at the same time, he never loses control of human affairs. His omnipotence, his omnipresence, and his omniscience enable him to gather events into his hands with the greatest ease. Do you believe that God's in charge of our world? You say, some of you are thinking, well, you know, it doesn't look that way to me. It looks like the devil's in charge and wicked people are in charge. Imagine a huge cruise ship. And we're all on the cruise ship. As a matter of fact, the whole world's on the cruise ship and it's got a destination. There's a captain of that ship and he's got his hand on the steering wheel. And he directs the rudder underneath. And he's the captain that's got the charts and the maps and he knows exactly where he's going and exactly where that ship is destined to go to. But while they're going there, on the way, all kinds of things happen on that ship that he does not like or agree with and that do not fall under his will. Ship rules are broken. People are wronged. Bad things happen. Yet nevertheless, the captain always remains in charge and is inexorably taking the ship to its destination. This world is like that ship. And the captain is in charge. And you say, well, where is it going? Read Revelations. Revelations tells us exactly where it's going, and the, and the captain's got his hand on the wheel. Are things happening on the ship that he doesn't like, that break his heart, that grieve him, that he wish weren't happening, that he can't stop because people have their own will? And yet, when they arrive at the destination, every single person who has done anything wrong on that ship is going to answer for it? But nothing stops the captain from getting the ship there. It's the love boat. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's going to get there. Do you believe that? And, and, and uh, God's in charge. And that's what we talk about when we say providence, that history is his story. It may not look like it, but he is inexorably steering and guiding the ship of this world into his will and into the destination of the new kingdom of God, new heavens and a new earth, where the old heavens and the old earth will pass away and all has become new. That's what we mean when we say omnipotence, all-powerful, omnipresence, everywhere at once, omniscience, all-knowing. Through his omniscience, he simply knows ahead of time who's going to be saved and who won't, who will respond to his grace and who will reject it. So God could speak of the infant Saul lying in his cradle in Tarsus as being separated, and I believe he did you too, if you're saved. Boy, can I hear the wheels turning. This is heavy stuff for a Wednesday night, Pastor Jeff. I was in the office all day. Listen, we got to get this. We serve a mighty God. He's not some figment of our imagination. He's not Greek mythology. He's not Brothers Grimm. This is a real God who's really in charge, who really is the God of providence. And he really is bringing history to a grand climax.
While he was in the very act of breathing out threatening and slaughter, Paul was arrested by the risen Christ himself on the Damascus Road through grace. What Paul deserved was wrath, and us too. What he received was grace, so did we. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. None of us deserve grace, but we got it. We deserve wrath. Jesus didn't deserve wrath, but that's what he got, so that we could receive grace. We have all received God's grace, a grace we didn't deserve. Now, following his powerful conversion, Paul tells us, I didn't immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. While initially remaining in Damascus, the Bible says he increased the more in strength, growing rapidly in his newfound faith and, quote, confounded the Jews, which dwelt at Damascus, proving that Jesus is very Christ. Now, after this, Paul went into Arabia. And in Arabia, he sought to enjoy the silence and plunged himself into meditation, Bible study, and prayer. He had a whole lot of reprocessing to do. So he said, I'm not going to go talk to people. I'm going to shut myself in with God. And I'm going to let him talk to me. He desperately needed time alone with God, with his Bible, with the Holy Spirit, and with the memory that he had seen of Jesus in his glory. Oh, gosh, this touches me. I want you to know, folks, there's times you got to get away, shut the world out, open up your Bible, get on your knees, shut the People magazine, turn off the idiot box, that idol that sits in the middle of everybody's living room around which all the furniture faces. <laughs> and we need to listen to God talk to us through his word. No doubt Paul poured through the Torah, the Psalms, the prophets. He reconstructed the promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament, such as, he discovered he was to be born in Bethlehem. Gee, I heard Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was to labor in Galilee, as Jesus did. He was to minister to the poor and to the oppressed. He read in Isaiah and other places. He was to do always those things that please the Father. He was to be crucified according to Psalms 22. Wow, Christ was crucified. I remember hearing tell of it. He was to be buried for three days and nights. He was to rise again from the dead and ascend on high. Connecting the dots one after another, Paul realized it was all there. Jesus fit the bill perfectly. For three years, think about three years. Three years, he remained in solitude, piecing together his newfound theology, preparing to take his case to the entire known world. And what a master he was going to be at bringing Christ to people. Next, he tells us of his first meeting with Simon Peter. I would give money to watch that meeting. Verses 18 to 20 say, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. After three years of alone with God, shut in with him, he went to meet Peter. And he remained with him for 15 days. Don't you know that was a 15 days to remember? But I saw none of the other apostles except James, he writes, the Lord's brother. 
Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, he says to the Galatians, I am not lying. I am not lying to you. This is the way it all came down. What a meeting that must have been. The apostle to the Jews, Peter, meeting the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul. Think about that. There they stood, looking each other in the eye. Peter, the simple Galilean fisherman, and Paul, the one-time rabbinic scholar. Outside of Christ, these dudes had nothing in common. They would never have hooked up and gone for a walk. The only thing they had in common was they met the man from Galilee, Jesus Christ. And that was enough. We can only imagine the hundreds of questions Paul asked Peter. He didn't need theology. God had taught him. But he did need the gaps filled in of his knowledge of Christ because Peter had walked with him for three and a half years in person, and Paul had not. So don't you know, he was loaded with questions pouring out of his brilliant mind. Peter, the eyewitness of the Lord's work and majesty, told Paul all about the miraculous healings, Jesus walking on the water. Can you imagine Paul sitting down and saying, Peter saying, Paul, there was a time we were in the boat, and it was night. And all of a sudden, in the distance, we see somebody walking towards us, walking right on top of the water. Now Saul, now Paul, going, you have just got to be kidding me. No. And as he got closer, we thought it was a phantom, a ghost, a phantasma. The Greek said phantasm. But, but as he got closer, he said, don't be afraid, it is I. And it was Jesus. He walked on the water, Paul. Oh, Paul was soaking this up like a hungry sponge, don't you know? And what about the time Peter watched Jesus raise the dead? The widow's son, Lazarus, the people he had brought up from deep death. And Saul, Paul, heard all about this for the first time. He, Peter described his teaching the multitudes, speaking like no man ever spoke how he cast out devils. Don't you know Peter went into great detail about the Gadarene demoniac and how that, that legion of devils came out of him and he was in his right mind? And Paul sat there and just soaked it up and asked more questions and couldn't believe the glory and the beauty of what he was hearing. Peter likely took Paul to the room where the, for, Lord's, uh, first, uh, or the first Lord's Supper had taken place. Here, Paul is where he broke the bread. And gave it to us, and this is where he handed some to Judas, and Judas went out. It happened right here, Saul. Then to the upper room where the Spirit had first fallen on the newborn church. Paul, we were right up here, 120 of us praying, and wham, the power of God fell. And everybody had tongues of fire over their head. From there to Gethsemane, where Jesus had prayed before his arrest. And he said, Paul, here, he sweated drops of blood. He had such consternation about the cross. Did he take Paul to the courtyard where warming himself by a fire he had denied the Lord? Don't know. All these places and events filled Paul's spirit with holy fire. How had he missed it? How had he been so oblivious to these miraculous events happening all around him? He had been shut in to his own little bubble, insulated, from the miraculous Christ doing what he did. No doubt Peter took Paul to the tomb where he spoke of peering in with John on that first Easter morn only to find it empty. And finally Paul was escorted to the Mount of Olives where Jesus had ascended again into heaven saying, I shall return. 
I can just picture Peter and Paul. He went right up there. Really? And he said, I shall return. We're told that Paul also met with James, the Lord's half-brother. And I can only imagine his curious mind pummeling James with all kinds of questions. Tell me, James, what was Jesus like at home? Did you ever get in an argument with him? Did he ever sass Mary? Was he really that perfect? He never got a whooping, ever? Never. It made us all sick. He was never in trouble. It just got to you after a while. The guy was just perfect. Tell me about the carpenter's shop where Jesus worked. All things, kinds of things like this. We can only imagine. The first chapter closes out with the mention of how amazed the Jewish believers were at the conversion of their former tormentor. Verses 21 and 24 say, Afterward I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing about me only. And what did they hear? That he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And look what it says they did. Can you read the last part with me? And they glorified God in me. You know what God's will is for your life and mine? That people looking at what he's done in us will glorify God. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what is God's call for you and me? That others will look and and see what God's done in us and through us and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Because we've got a testimony Say, I've got a testimony. You do. You've got a testimony. Once you were lost, now you're found. Once you were blind, but now you see. Once you were dead, now you're alive. Once you were hellbound, now you're heavenbound. You've got a testimony. Let people glorify God because of what he's done in you. Now, the believers had all heard of the dreaded Saul, the persecutor. His very name had sent chills down the spines of the early Christians. He dragged them in the jail, tore their families apart, scourged them with whips, killed them in the name of Judaism. But now this very same man was one of them. How badly does our world need a testimony like this right now? Think about it. How, how badly? How many churches are just stone dead cold? You go visit them, you can ice skate to the seat. No one's going to say hello to you or greet you. I talked to a man, this is really true, I talked to a man just a f- few weeks ago who told me that he just got an idea one Sunday morning. He decided he was going to visit like five churches in one Sunday. So he found the churches that had early service, later services, and evening services, and he went to five churches in one Sunday. And he said, do you know that not one of them, I went into five churches and not in one of them was I greeted. Now, he was not a crier. As a matter of fact, he was a very successful guy. He said, I just wanted to see what was out there. Not one person greeted me. He said, I even hung around at the coffee bar thinking, well, if I get a coffee and stand here looking needy, somebody's going to come up and say hello. In five churches, nobody greeted him. 
He sat in the chair and went through the service and got up and left. A stranger walked in and a stranger walked out. And everybody he left were strangers inside. And I thought, we're supposed to welcome one another as, and receive one another as Jesus has welcomed and received us. It didn't happen. How badly is a church that is alive and well and loving and vibrant and full of the Holy Spirit and full of light and full of life needed in our culture right now? I'm telling you, if you could see what comes to me by radio, we get emails and we get letters and people say, I have never heard that message. And it was a message that 30 years ago you would have heard all the time. But it has become rare now because everything has become God wants you successful and rich and wants you to get the best parking spot at the mall. And what we have been looking at tonight is never taught or preached in a lot of churches. What a shame. What a shame. So what happened to Paul? Man, it rocked the church world, and God was glorified in him. God wants to be glorified through what he's done in you. So don't keep it quiet. Tell somebody. Don't worry about what they think. Bring somebody this weekend to church. Just go knock on their door. Hey, you want to come to church with me this Sunday? This Saturday night? Whichever? Oh, well, I haven't been to church in 30 years. Well, now's your time. Come with me. Bring them. People are dying out there. Well, their arch enemy was now preaching the gospel. A notable miracle had taken place in Saul. The wolf had become a sheep. The persecutor had become a preacher. And they glorified God in me, says Paul. Now, God is always glorified when a sinner repents and is saved, becoming a new creation in Christ. May God be glorified in our lives as we submit to the ever-transforming power of God. Can we stand together tonight? And next time, I'm going to show you how the, the apostles accepted Paul and then they began to turn the world upside down to the glory of God. How many of you enjoy this tonight? Isn't this powerful? It's good stuff. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you right now for the power of God. We thank you, Lord, that the life of Jesus is in your people. And there is a blessing residing in every person in this house who knows Jesus. Lord, we pray earnestly with all of our being that in this dark and depraved and backslidden culture, you will help us to step forward full of your light and full of your truth and declare you without fear of what people think. For the power of God unto salvation is tucked away in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray, help us to walk with you in such a way that others look and God is glorified in what they see the Lord has done in us. Can we lift our hands to him? And just say, Lord, be glorified in me. Be glorified in me. In the name of Jesus, Lord, Help me to shine at the workplace, shine among my neighbors, shine on the streets. Help me to shine 
you would be glorified. In Jesus' mighty name.